Welcome to the Pipeline. I'm Corey Morgan, the uh, Alberta columnist with the Western Standard. This is our weekly panel show covering the top stories and issues and dissecting what's been going on in Canada over the last week. So the folks joining me today, well, one of the regulars on the Pipeline, of course, is our opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. How's it going, Nigel? So far, so good, Corey. Well, Great good. show today, I think. Oh. I think we got a lot to talk about. Oh, there's, there's never a shortage. No, there? there certainly isn't. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we will certainly be getting into it right away. All oh, the glasses are coming off, so we know. This is serious stuff. <laughs> this is serious. Okay, as well from Saskatchewan, we've got Chris Oldcorn on. You're not so regular on the show, but always welcome and uh, lots to add. A very prolific writer for the Western Standard. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Oh, much appreciated. And yes, Derek's indisposed. Uh, there, there will be a story coming on about that. I, I should laugh, you know, bring it up just as on a lighter note. The video went out to uh, Derek's precious new motorcycle. And I understand why he'd be upset. You know, it's a big purchase. But uh, uh, a rough-looking fellow went out in the back and tipped it over just randomly out of the blue there and did some damage to it. And uh, Derek rounded somebody up from the newsroom, and they managed to uh, catch this fellow. And that somebody was Sean Pulser. Yes. When not... Uh, reporting energy shows remarkable industry and is a, a gumshoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, the Western Standard Justice Team. Yeah, uh, you bet. Yeah. A, and there'll be a, a don't mess with me. I got friends in the Western Standard. That's there right. Yeah. There'll be a story pending on that one. Well, aside from our, our local uh, crime and justice issues, we got a few other things to talk about today. Of course, the 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 trial for the the uh, a couple of the organizers of the. Uh, Freedom Convoy last year in Ottawa has gotten underway. It did the other day with uh, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. And, of course, there'll be a lot to discuss and what that trial means, where it might be going, and, and how people are going to receive it. As well, in Manitoba, out in the West, the uh, provincial election has kicked off over there, and it looks like they got a pretty tight race building up between the PCs and the NDP out there. So we'll talk a bit about that and what's going on. Uh, then that's a big story. It's been a big one with the standard, a leaked memo saying that uh, record numbers of immigration have been fueling the housing crisis within Canada. As much as the Liberals have been denying it, it sounds like they kind of always knew that was the case out there. So, uh, yes, that will be an interesting conversation as well. Let's start things out, though, with talking about uh, Tamara Leach and, and, and uh, Chris Barber. Uh, uh, Nigel, yeah, I mean, where do we start with this? You know, we've talked about it a long time. It's been building, but it's kind of like it's it's a we're revisiting the whole uh, Emergencies Act and lockdown and, and the protests and, and everything all over again. Uh, well, you know, you, you know, Corey, I think people who are expecting a rerun of Perry Mason with dramatic sport with dramatic incidents and people pointing at each other and shouting each other down and probably in for a disappointment. So far, it's been like watching paint dry. It almost has to be that way as, as, the, uh, as lawyers make their case and, uh, and put the evidence out in front of the jury. But, it, you know, it strikes me, Corey, that in the end, whatever the decision of the court, and obviously we have our ideas about what that ought to be, uh, you can't get away from the fact that this is a political event. It was a political protest, and the protesters are now on trial. So uh, where does this thing land in the end? It's going to be, it is probably in the liberal government's interest to get this out of the way now, two years before the next election, because as a political event, I think everybody is going to have an opinion, and they're going to have a strongly held opinion. Well, this is it's a good point, Nigel, and this is very divided with people. I've been watching, of course, the social media buzz and so on. There's not many people looking at a gray area in this. They, they feel either these organizers are guilty of a high crime and should have the, the full force of the law imposed upon them, or people feeling that they should be just, you know, that it should be let free. They never did anything wrong. They expressed their, their free protest and... and uh, should let it go. Uh, Chris, uh, you, you, of course, have been watching this uh, closely as well. All of us have over the last year and some now. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you, uh, your interpretation of this trial as it gets underway? Uh, so far, uh, yeah, it's, it's been pretty just procedural so far. Um, the first main witness came up today. 
which was uh, the incident commander for the uh, Ottawa uh, police. And basically what he said was they were uh, overwhelmed. They didn't expect as many uh, people to show up in terms of like the trucks and so on. They were they vastly uh, underestimated the size of the convoy and that caused them problems because they were stretched so thin. Um, which just showed that there was plenty of people in Canada uh, who were upset with the lockdowns that were persistent and mandates and so on for vaccine and and all the masking and everything else that went on. And of course, rightly so, people went and they protested, which in a free country you are allowed to do, um, which begs the question, if you uh, don't follow what the government is saying in this country, do you still have the ability to go out there and say what you think uh, without fear of being arrested and prosecuted? Um, and possibly, I mean, they're both looking at, you know, possibly, you know, 10 years in jail or more, which is for an, a protest organizer. Um, not to mention there was all kinds of leaks that came out uh, that shouldn't have been leaked to the media in terms of communication uh, between both of them that's now out there in the public. So there's, there's all kinds of questionable things that have happened even before this trial started yesterday. Well, yeah, and that's something that I, I think there's a lot of symbolism going on right now. Like, something that the courts will have to prove and indicate is malintent on the part of the organizers. There hasn't, they, they weren't looking to commit a high crime or, or harm anybody with this uh, protest. There's no evidence of such. I mean, things really took off in a way that I think nobody saw coming, whether it was the, the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber or or the, the Ottawa police force. And I, I think the prosecution, I mean... It, they're going to have to try and indicate that, that these are potentially dangerous people if they really want a strong sentence, because otherwise uh, you're really just uh, being vindictive and trying to go after them. Yeah, the right, <clears throat> the right to protest has got to be more than the right to letter to write a letter to your MP. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, and unfortunately, protests are inconvenient for people around them. Forget about this one for a moment. If you happen to live near the legislature. Uh, in Edmonton, and there's a group of people, thousands of them perhaps, who are making a noise one afternoon. Well, that's inconvenient. Now that they will say, "Well, this went on for weeks," and it did. But in 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 principle, it's the same thing. And uh, the point was a, a valid one. And how do you? It, nobody went around breaking property. Quite the reverse, in fact. Mm -hmm. Nobody made a mess of the streets. Quite the reverse, in fact. And I understand from reports at the time that even petty crime was down in that area <laughs> while, the, while the, the convoy was there. Uh, so I don't know how the courts will measure the proportionality of an occupation. They, they will want to call it an occupation. They already have tried to call it an occupation. And, of course, the lawyer for, uh, for Ms. Leach and uh, Mr. Barber said, no, 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 it's not an occupation. It's protest, you see. Uh, but the proportionality of it may be, what, may be what the thing turns on, that they go too far for too long. If I could just hop on what uh, Nigel just said there a second ago about the crime. A couple uh, months ago, I was on a Twitter space uh, with Sockwell Day. And he was in Ottawa at the time, and he said he felt the safest walking from where he lived to his office during the convoy than at any other time in Ottawa. And he has spent a long time in Ottawa. So that's just one example of, you know, crime was down. I mean, you don't show up at bouncy castles uh, when you're trying to commit crimes. Yeah, well, and the, 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 the proportion, as Nigel was saying, and the extent of the prosecution on this, I mean, we've seen past large pro protests it's quite a while for some people if you remember the occupy movement that happened mm -hmm. and uh in city parks all across north america there were protesters setting up camp literally for months before the police even moved on them and i never remembered any of those protest leaders ever having such a force of the law coming down i think there were some fines issued and a few minor things but not a case where, where they're held without bail for for 50 some days at a time and and now relentlessly pursued through the court system like this. Well, if, you know, if the government is going to prevail in this prosecution, and I'll say it again, this is a political prosecution, they are going to have to show that the convoy leaders wanted to bring down the government. 
I think they will not be able to do that because that was never the intent and nothing like that was ever proposed. They will also have to explain why the Prime Minister would not even meet with leaders of the convoy right at the start. Uh, that was an option. And in the first hours and days of the, of, of the arrival of those trucks, if the Prime Minister had said, all right, you know, send me, bring the leaders in, let's, let's meet in a neutral ground, you know, there's plenty of hotels around there with large ballrooms. Maybe everybody would have been satisfied if they'd been able to give a thorough airing of their grievances to the Prime Minister himself. There was never a sense in which if we don't get what we want, if we don't bring the government down, we're staying here forever. Well, and, and it, again, yes, it, it would have um, gathered the Even if a senior minister had gone or just somebody to show an indication of listening, even if it wasn't well-intentioned, but just to go through the motions, go down and say, we sat with them, they're intractable, they're extreme, now we can no longer uh, negotiate, we have to work on getting out. But they never even did that first step of talking with them. And, and that says a lot. And it stole, I think, the, the moral high ground from their ability to move in and, and, and prosecute any protesters or remove them. Well, it was never a violent crowd. I mean, there are certainly some protests that we've all witnessed over the years where you probably wouldn't want to uh, go down there and talk to the, uh, and talk to the crowd uh, or even have them into a hotel room. It would just turn into a circus. But this was one, like, these are, these are basically law-abiding people. Yeah, and, yeah. It, and it was there was no real believe harm. in the you, system. You'd need some degree of security. Fair enough. Yeah. But I, I remember, I, th I believe it was before he was the prime minister. But uh, Trudeau sat down with Justice or Justice Chief Teresa Spence when she had her uh, amazing weight gaining hunger strike uh, on uh, Parliament Hill, and uh, yes, <laughs> again, you know, nothing changed. But he gave the time to speak to her. But I mean, I'll, I'll go down and I'll start with Chris, though. I guess on, on this though. And, well, that's what we do is we speculate and guess. Like Chris, I, I, or I'll start with myself as well, uh, in guessing how this court case is going to end up and how people are going to react to it. And I, I think that uh, the justice is going to head to the, the mushy middle. They're going to convict them on a couple of charges. They're going to throw out a few others and probably won't give them any jail time. They'll say you've put in enough time served with your time in remand. <clears throat> and nobody's going to be happy about it, though, because the people who want blood are going to want them to do more time in jail. And the people, of course, supportive of Leach and Barber are going to say, hey, no, they should be exonerated on this. And they'll probably go to appeals. But uh, yeah, I, I, that's where I feel things are going to be going. But where do you think they are, Chris? Well, this is a judge-only trial. There's no jury. Um, I think that the judge will have to look at it based on the merits of the case. I don't think there's anything that suggests they were trying to overthrow the government. I mean, no one said that. You can't find, you know, either of these people, or for that matter, the organizers of the Freedom Convoy and the people who were there, no one was saying we're here to overthrow the government. And that's going to be a hard case to make when you have all this communications between uh, the organizers and no one ever said it, or even for that matter, inferred it. So at the end, I think you're right. I think it'll come down to they'll get, you know, a slap on the wrist, maybe some community service hours at best, or maybe I, I don't think you're going to see them doing any jail time at all for it. Uh, I think this 16 day trial is, is really just more for show than anything else. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I think you're right, Corey. I don't, I don't see them spending much time in jail, if any, and it'll be a, basically a slap on the wrist. I think, Chris, that the charges are mischief and encouraging others to commit mischief. Is that not correct? Yeah, there's mischief, intimidation, obstructing police officer, counseling others to do the same thing. Uh, Chris has an additional charge about obstructing a highway uh, because of his vehicle. Um, but other than that, uh, like these are not charges that make you be like, wow, these are dangerous criminals. We better lock them up for a decade. Yeah. Depends what point the government really wants to make. And I, I know that people who believe in the judicial system would be quick to say, well, it's not the government that's going to make the decision. It's going to be the judge. But I think we all know that uh, um, judges are appointed. 
by the government. <laughs> For most we, we all have ex we all have our own expectations. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, anyway, um, are we allowed to wish Tamara Leach luck? I believe so. This is an opinion broadcast. Yeah. We're putting out our, our, our point of view on this, and that's why I'm saying we'll even go down the speculation road, and we have the right to be completely wrong in guessing uh -huh. how the rulings may come in this. But yeah. uh, I think most of us are wishing Tamara and uh, uh, Chris the best out of this. I mean, we know that they're, they're not odious, dangerous criminals that are going to go out and cause harm should they not be locked up. Yeah. This is a very, very much a, a show trial. No, it's... It's sad. I, I think a lot of it comes down to points of pride, too, though. You know, the, the government was embarrassed. The government was, the prime minister himself was embarrassed. He appeared on international circles to have lost control of his own country, his own people. And uh, now they're vindictive. They, 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 they want to slap back. And that's not the reason, proper reason for justice. Vengeance should never be a part of justice. Uh, you said it. That's exactly right. Well, we'll keep watching and waiting. And as I said, I, I share it. I wish to, uh, Tamara the, the best and, and Chris as well. And I, I can't speak for uh, yourself, Chris, but I imagine your, your sentiment's similar. Yes, it is. And just to clarify, the, the Chris on trial isn't me. It's uh, Chris Barber. You know. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, you're not. We'll put you on trial for something I, else. We'll yeah, I'm just covering it. Okay. So uh, I should turn to and speak to uh, guys who are standing up for our rights as well and not on the streets and in a protest sort of way, but as uh, I guess you could say an advocacy group. And that's the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. They've been a fantastic sponsor for us at the Western Standard for quite some time. And they've been a fantastic advocate and resource for firearm owners, of course, for a long, long time as well. We've got, I mean, among the many, many issues that are coming from the federal government infringing on our rights, a government that ideologically wants to take away your right to use and enjoy and own firearms safely and responsibly. So the CSSA, they push back, they stand up for you. Plus, they have all sorts of resources on their site, as any association would. If you own firearms and want to maintain your right to own them, you've got to be a member of the CSSA. It's an investment in your own rights. Check them out. Its website is cssa-cila.org. It's the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Just Google them. Take out a membership. It's not that much, and they will help continue to make sure that uh, you can enjoy those firearms because it's just, uh, again, as we're seeing with these trials, we've got a government that's not looking out for our rights, and if we don't stand up for ourselves, nobody else will. All right, well, let's go to the federal front. It might tie in... Uh, a little bit indirectly with this trial. I mean, it's one of those things that actually has put our federal conservatives in a rock and a hard place on a divisive uh, sort of issue. But right now, polls are certainly uh, turning. I mean, we're seeing a big change. It's not just an outlier. A lot of polls have been coming out now federally, and they've been pretty clear that the, the, the Liberal Party of Canada is in a, a polling freefall as far as that goes, and, and the conservatives are really gaining ground. For the first time, we're starting to see some pretty clear evidence of a uh, a conservative majority, you know, potentially with the polling as things sit today, of course. We understand it's a, a snapshot, but boy, you know, that's, that's been a turnaround. This last few months, Nigel, I mean, we've really seen just such a shift where they seem to have been kind of locked in the in this, you know, static spot for so long. And now they are just on the move. But what do you think is really behind this change? Well, just to add some uh, specific details to what you've just said there, mm -hmm. they, we're talking about a, a, a poll released by 338. Uh, that is an aggregator for, that looks at everybody's polls and certain other considerations as well, like records and history and so forth. And they come up with a projection. And what they're projecting is 100 and I mean, this is if, if, the, if the election had happened yesterday. 179 seats for the Conservatives out of 338. And the Liberals cut way back down to 101. So that is, that's their projection. Now, you know, if I were a, a Liberal strategist and I had been asked by a, a friendly uh, television station to comment, I would tell the CBC that... Um, polls are for dogs and that uh, in two years time who knows what the situation will be but our sheep always come back to the fold when the when there's a stark choice and certainly for the last uh, two elections that has been the case but you'll notice that the vote turnout 
or the Liberals has declined with every election since 2015. They, you know, they got a handsome majority in 2015. They didn't get a handsome majority in 2019, and they pulled even less in 2021 to the point that they actually had to have this hand-holding agreement with the NDP, which has not served the NDP. Well, not that I care, but the, uh, the, 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 the Liberals have actually been trending downwards now ever since they were elected in 2015. And what this poll is showing is that since the last election in 2021, the trending down is continuing. So this is a long-term movement. Who knows whether the numbers will be just exactly as they are today in two years' time. But the Liberals have got a serious problem of losing public enthusiasm, public trust, and credibility. Uh, you know, if I can just say one last thing, Corey, there is there's a way that these things work. The first time you screw up, everybody talks about it for a while, and then life goes on. And then comes the second time and the third time, and people start to forget what the original ones were. But you know what they do remember? There was something. This guy is always screwing up. And when the media gets hold of that idea, suddenly things start to change. And you no longer get the benefit of the doubt. It happens to every government. And it is happening to this one. And you know, their problem is that they can't get a handle on it. They keep fueling it. And so I, I would say that this... This, this, whatever the, whatever the spinmeisters say, this is not going to be, uh, not going to be a happy day in the PMO. No, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, you live and die by the polls when you're in politics, whether you want to admit it or well, not. Yeah. And they, they do their own internals, and it's true. It, hey, if it could get this low after two years, it can climb back up within two years. I, this doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, mean something, but it bodes terribly. As you said, it's a trend. This isn't an outlier. This isn't a spike. It just continues to drift down. And, and as you said, it was, it's one scandal or problem or, or misstep after another. Uh, Chris, like, what do you see as, as standing out? I mean, it is a cumulative problem that's going on, but it does seem to be accelerating lately too. But what is it that's, that's causing a more recent loss in confidence and, and uh, support for the Liberals in your view? Uh, well, uh, we can go to actually another poll that we, uh, we had last week uh, about young voters, uh, voters in their 20s, between 20 and 29. Predominantly, they were, you know, liberal supporters, and it has just been, once again, a downward trend. So just from the beginning of August to the last week of August, they went from 26% support with people in their 20s all the way down to 16% in one month. And voters, those young liberal voters, have been going both directions. Uh, the NDP has about 31% support now in people in their 20s. But here's an astounding number. The Conservatives are only almost at 40%. They're at like 39.7%, I believe it was, in the poll, uh, support among voters in their 20s. And I think it's because Pierre has been hammering on affordability issues and that is playing well with them because, you know, their incomes are lower than people in their 40s and 50s. So things are hitting them harder and they're trying to get in the housing market and they can't uh, because we're just not straight up not building enough houses for the amount of people that we're bringing into the country and that are already here. We have been not building enough for a long, long time. And it's a cumulative effect. And I, I honestly think it, it's, it's going to the grocery store and the dream of buying a home is making a lot of voters in their 20s really disillusioned with the Liberal Party, particularly the one uh, led by Justin Trudeau. I don't think they feel that they can relate to him in any way, shape or form presently. Yeah, and that's got to be making them sweat when a key component of your base support is losing. Again, they're, they're not losing support you know, or or further among people who are already strong conservative demographics. It's the youth that should make them sweat. Like that was mm -hmm. their stronghold. And uh, yeah, I'm well past my twenties, but I remember it well. And, and you're, 
you're full of ideals at that age, uh, you know, and that's where you could vote based on those. But you're also your wallet tends to be pretty empty. I, I, in my twenties, I mean, times were tight. You got the young kids in the house. You're you're still building up your your mm-hmm. fortune, whatever it may be, furniture and paying off a car and so on. You're you're very sensitive to cost of living issues, and uh, you often don't necessarily have a big buffer to get you through spikes or t- times when it's going high. So, I, I you know. They don't, they're not feeling, I think, that the Trudeau government can turn this around. I, I think that's part of what's really changing that for the youth right now. Oh, I'm sure it is. And, you know, the question that that raises is, will the old liberal tactics work? In the past, in past elections, they have trotted out the purple dinosaur arguments. You know what I'm talking about. I remember yeah. it well, yeah. yes. Okay. And uh, they, they, they would want, they would love to be able to say that um, the conservative leader is, you know, he's a closet pro-choice, uh, pro-life uh, advocate, and that um, you know, gay marriage will be uh, be under attack if he if he's elected prime minister. Well, you know, Pierre Polliver, I mean, not the social conservatives like him for this, but Pierre Polliver has made it very clear that that he is pro-choice. He went out and actually said he is. He didn't kind of beat around the bush and say, well, I, you know, I personally am pro-life, but I wouldn't legislate, which is what conservative leaders tend to say. Uh, he said he's pro-choice. Well, there goes that issue. You're not, you're not going to be able to run a, a campaign of innuendo based on that. So what about other aspects of social conservatism? Well, um, you know, he has a very diverse caucus. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, if that be, if the liberals try to make that an issue, he can just put certain people on center stage, and they don't have to say whether they, you know what particular aspect of diversity they represent. They just everybody knows what they stand for. So there goes that. So you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to try and claim he's actually a Russian agent? You know, it worked for, worked on Trump, I guess, but you know. Could it work on Pierre Pullover? Where do these people go? Well, they're, yeah, their guns running out of bullets. I mean, you brought up, it's funny, I just talked Day came up recently, and that's where the, the purple dinosaur thing came from. That was from Warren Kinsella when he yeah. pulled that stunt. And Kinsella has been very critical of the Trudeau uh, liberals. Like The pragmatic liberals of the 90s, though, don't seem to be there anymore. It's a, it's a government populated by ideologues and... and uh, I, I would think if, if they could regain confidence in the fiscal thing, they need to pull up some people right now to say... These are strong financial managers. These are things we can do to make your life more affordable. And they don't seem to have them around anywhere. There's no more Paul Martins. There's no, uh, you know, uh, responsible liberals that they can bring forth. So I, I, they're in a tough position, I, I would say. Yeah. And uh, Jagmeet Singh, a couple of years ago, even said that the liberals are taking his best policies. Well, that's because the Liberal Party just kept shifting to the left and, and took over a lot of the the things that the NDP was pushing Um, and they've almost become the NDP. And unfortunately for them, most Canadians don't line up with a lot of the NDP policies. That's why they don't get that many seats and the liberals have moved, tried to move into that territory and it hasn't worked. And yeah. That's a very good point. I mean, this partnership with the Jagmeet Singh, they can't help but then start wearing some of the, the, the NDP policies, which, Again, if the majority of Canadians wanted to go as far left as the NDP, we would have had an NDP government by now. Yes. Yep. But the thing with this poll is that it is so overwhelmingly uh, in favor of of the Conservatives, it excludes the possibility of a continuation of a a liberal NDP uh, alliance because 179 is an absolute majority. And uh, out of 338 seats, this has got to be deeply concerning to to the uh, the prime minister and to the people around him. They'll smile and make light of it, and make all the you know the dog comments, but uh, things are not going their way. And frankly, you know what it is, Corey. Ultimately, it's the hypocrisy that gets you. It's always the it's when you say you stand for this and then do that, and that's the record of this government and. People can't remember the details, but they know it when they see it. And that's what's forming their opinions now. 
can imagine if I was a, a struggling young parent and I uh, see a prime minister in $6,000 a night hotel rooms in a governor general jet setting, I, I start to get a little tired of it eventually. Oh, sure. so, just to chime in one other thing there too, um, picking, piggybacking on something that Nigel said there, um, it's no longer the conservative party. When you see a picture of all of their MPs, it's no longer a conservative party. You can't use the argument that it's just a bunch of old white guys. Because it's not. It's very diverse. It's very it looks very much like Canada does, and it shows that you know conservatives can come from any part of Canadian society and have those uh, conservative values. And it used to be that they would just pull out that old sort of boogeyman bunch of boogeyman arguments, like Nigel was saying. But that's getting harder and harder to do uh, when you look at the Conservative Party and. Who are their voters? Who are who are their MPs? Who are their candidates? Uh, it's it's quite a diverse party. You know, Chris, that's that's a very good point, and I I think the uh, the the old liberal assumption that anybody who is anything other than white is a natural liberal mm -hmm. rests on the assumption that if you're not white, you must be a victim, and they've played mm -hmm. to that. But you know, look at the kind of people who are uh, getting elected as conservatives. They are people who have conservative ideas, and they may come from somewhere else, or they may come from a, a non-white... We just, we've just elected, uh, here in Calgary Heritage, we've elected Shivaloy Majumder. He is not a white guy. He is, but he is an out-and-out -out conservative. I know the man very well. He, like this. he is not... He never was or ever could have been a liberal voter, and yet the Liberal Party behaves as though they think, well, if you, if you are anything but white, then you probably belong with us. Yeah, and she was an excellent example. And I mean, yeah, I've known him a while, yeah. too, and he, he's I mean, there are others, fantastic. But... And, and he's an example, too, of the next generation of immigrants. That I, I'm not sure if she was born in Canada or not. He's been in Cal he grew up in Calgary. His yeah. English is better than mine, I believe, if uh, we talk one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I wasn't going to bring that up, but since you mentioned it. <laughs> he's certainly yeah. more classy than I am when he speaks anyways. but uh, And that changes that demographic as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great conservatives from, from all uh, cultures and, and walks and, and uh they're, they're capitalizing on it. Now, that's not a recent thing, by the way. I mean, it was the same under the Harper government. It was just yeah. never particularly recognized as such. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's turn the page to some provincial politics for a bit here. We'll get back to some federal stuff when we cap off the show here. But an election has just been called in, in Manitoba, a general election. And it's a competitive one uh, from all indications right now. This is the first campaign that uh, Heather uh, Stephenson is going to be going into as premier. And uh, she's had a tough time. She never had uh, that honeymoon after winning the leadership, becoming premier. She's consistently been considered the least popular premier in Canada, at least as, a, as the personal indication when, when measuring the premier. The party has had its ups and downs. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's a progressive conservative government in Manitoba right now. Uh, with uh, I'll just break it down there. There's 57 seats in their legislature. There's 35 progressive conservatives. 18 NDP, three Liberals, and one vacancy. Uh, again, as far as polls go, I was looking at 338. Kind of their aggregator is looking at it with maybe a slight NDP lead or almost neck and neck. But, of course, this is right in the, the very beginning of this campaign right now in, in Manitoba, so it could really go uh, either way. I, I know you've been uh, doing some background on this, Nigel. Uh, what, what are you seeing coming up here in Manitoba? Well, okay, if you're asking me to put my money on the table and make my bet now, I say the Conservatives go back in again. Um, that is because some of, the, some of the NDP policies are so far out there that people will eventually come to theirs. <laughs> it's like the liberal strategists, you know, the flock comes home. It works both ways. Uh, I mean... Wab Canoe is the um, is the NDP leader, and he's he signed on to the Leap Manifesto, uh, a more uh, left wing progressive piece of literature you wouldn't find since the year two thousand. And all the progressives and all the people who had big ideas signed on to this. It's highly environmental. It's uh, uh, no more resource extraction. Well, you know. Uh, in the end, people understand that you can't live like that. And uh, if you want a job, 
you are going to have to have some economic development. And these things are aspirational, but they're not practical policy. So you put that together with um, a um, with with uh, a promise to well, he, you know, he promises not to raise taxes, or at least to only raise them uh, by linking them with uh, with inflation. But then there's the credibility thing. When a conservative says they won't raise taxes, you know they're speaking from the heart. When a socialist promises not to raise taxes, you tend to suspect that they might, if it was if they felt it was in their interest to do so. Certainly, we here in Alberta know all about that from the four years of um, Mrs. Notley's uh, time as Premier. And I think the, the Manitobans probably suspect the same thing. So if you're asking me to go out on a limb, I say that Heather Stephenson goes back. But it won't be because everybody admires how she handled the COVID crisis uh, and the lockdowns and jailing pastors and crackdowns on churches and so forth. That is a thing. the thing that might help her. And maybe, I, I know, I know uh, Chris is very following this very, very closely, not only in Manitoba, but in other provinces. Chris, um, what is she doing about restoring parental rights? Well, this is huge. Um, she did come out and say that, you know, parents have rights to their kids. Surprise, surprise. Um, they should know if they're changing their pronouns or wanting to transition. Uh, so she's weighed in on that. And it looks like that that policy... Um, obviously, if they get elected, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. Um, I do think that gave her a bump in the polls. Uh, it was very, those stories were very popular when they came out. Um, and on top of that, they're doing a bunch of things that are, are, are hitting people in their 20s and 30s. So you have parents with young kids who are worried about like what's going on in their kids' schools. And at the, so they're going from the parental rights aspect of it, but they're also going after the economic aspect of it. Uh, the lowest tax bracket uh, over the next four years, the amount of taxes someone will pay in that will be cut in half. That's on top of the tax cut they put in for the lowest tax bracket in their 2023 budget. And then if you are a first time home buyer, they are going to eliminate the land transfer tax, which is the highest in the country and put in by the NDP back in 1987. And just to give you an example, the tax cut will put about $1,900 back into people's pockets um, per month. Um, and then the land transfer tax, let's say you're buying an average home in Winnipeg, that's going to save you a little under 6,000 bucks in the land transfer tax and registration fees. So between the parental rights and the economic stuff for people in the lower income brackets, they're really going after voters in their twenties and thirties. And maybe they're seeing what's happening federally with, you know, a lot of people leaving from the liberals into the conservatives in that age bracket and kind of piggybacking on some of that. Chris, but she uh, is definitely she's definitely behind the parental rights thing. She didn't go as far as Mo did, but with the banning of third parties like Planned Parenthood, but she went all the way up to that line. Mo was the only one that went over the line with the uh, banning third parties. New Brunswick and Manitoba and Ontario didn't uh, ban things like Planned Parenthood, even though they did here in Saskatchewan. Chris, um, not every province has a land transfer tax. Uh, of the ones that do, theirs is the highest. Like percentage-wise, well, just yeah. just how bad is it? Well, if you're buying an average home in Winnipeg, it's fifty-seven hundred bucks for the land transfer tax. So just to buy a house, it, it, you, and you paid the realtor, mm -hmm. and now you have to find five thousand seven hundred dollars for the government. Uh, yes, yeah. So and, she is, and a small registration fee on top of that as well. So she's she has promised to get rid of that uh, for first-time home buyers. Yes. So if you are renting right now and you're going to buy a home, uh, then you qualify. Well, and that saves a huge amount of money, particularly when you're younger and in a lower tax bracket than say somebody in their forties or fifties. Oh yeah. It takes a bite out of, you know, what you're trying to save for your down payment that first time. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a tough hurdle everywhere as it is. It always has been. So, uh, that, that, that's always, that'll certainly be set in the back. I can see that being popular. Uh, the other part too, uh, you, we talked a bit before the show about that, Chris, about just, you know, and Nigel mentioned with credibility is, uh, 
Kinu's been you know, promising some things as well. I mean, uh, you know, that's nothing new out of politicians. They will promise the moon and the stars to get elected, but whether or not you believe them when they're saying those or whether they, it could actually happen. And he's made some some health promises that have got to be making even progressive voters thinking, hey, you know, I, I love what you're saying, but I, I just can't see that happening uh, in the health system. Yes, that I, I'm not sure what where he thinks he's going to be able to do this or find these people. But he said that if he's, he's elected, he's going to hire 400 new doctors, 300 new nurses and uh, reopen three uh, ERs uh, in the Winnipeg area. Um, I think every single premier across this province, across the country, every province and territory would love to be able to go out and hire 400 doctors and 300 nurses. They just don't exist. That's the problem. So it's one thing to get up and, say these promises for healthcare and stuff like that. But if there's nothing like if it's not based in reality, um, I'm sure the conservatives right now in uh, Manitoba would hire 400 doctors and 300 nurses. If they existed, they have programs in place trying to recruit healthcare workers, um, incentivizing them to come to Manitoba, just like there is in other provinces in Canada. And for that matter, <laughs> Everybody's fighting for healthcare workers across the globe right now because there's a there's just a global shortage. And the other thing that the uh, PCs did that actually was uh, in- incredibly smart was they have a what they're calling a favorable legal opinion uh, that uh, if they're reelected, they're going to take the carbon tax off your hydro bill and then fight the government in court if they come to try and get the money. So they're going to tell Manitoba Hydro to scrap the carbon tax on the bills and see what happens. Uh, They haven't really been too specific on what they mean by favorable legal opinion. um, But that's also one of their platforms as well is to go after the carbon taxes too. You know, I just ask Chris one more thing here. Um, In, in Alberta, there is a huge interest in using part of Saskatchewan and part of Manitoba as an energy corridor Mm -hmm. which you would export natural gas and move electricity, maybe uh, allow Manitoba to sell hydropower in a westerly direction. Uh, This energy corridor has been proposed for years. And I think the idea is that if it could be put together on indigenous land, then it would make the whole process of approval very much uh, easier by being that one step removed from federal oversight. Now, we are under the impression that Heather Stephenson has not been particularly receptive to that proposal. Do you know why? And do you think that this this uh, election might change her tune? I think as she tries to play more, she tries to play a little bit happier with Ottawa than Saskatchewan and Alberta do. I mean, Mo and, and Smith obviously are very outspoken against policies coming from Ottawa and also how we have a lot of our energy that's a bit landlocked uh, where we could be exporting a lot more and, and so on. Uh, but I, I think that if, if it was put on the table and there was a actual real plan that would bring tons of jobs to Manitoba. Um, I don't see why she would not be full steam ahead on that because she is like, for example, the Manitoba hydro thing, uh, standing up to the government on energy issues. Um, and so of Alberta and Saskatchewan, I mean, renewable energy is not going to, uh, heat our homes in the middle of a Saskatchewan winter when it's minus 40. Um, and whether we like it or not, Uh, We're going to be reliant on oil and gas and natural gas uh, for the foreseeable future, um, regardless of what policies Trudeau uh, and his uh, buddies in Ottawa want to put in place with regard to the environment. So do you think it's going to be an election issue at all? I think it it might be something they bring up very close uh, to the election if they do. Uh, as sort of a cherry on top of we're going to bring more high paying jobs to Manitoba because it would, those jobs are going to be very good middle-class jobs and they would last for a long time. So. Well, we'll be watching this election pretty closely. It sounds like the issues are very similar actually to what we're looking at on the federal front. And it could be a bit of a snapshot of those issues as they hit the polls there.
So we're getting close for time here. We want to touch on that final subject quickly. So I'll go to Ichi. I'll start with Chris, because uh, this is something that kind of recently came out and really dominated our, our story scrolls. Credit where due. It was Key and Bexty with his counter signal who got that memo on that. And, and it was uh, a memo saying, I mean, something that's contrary to what the liberals have been claiming all along, that immigration is causing or is certainly is exacerbating the housing crisis across the country. Justin Trudeau now is clear, was aware of that being a problem and he has done nothing about it. Uh, Chris, uh, how do you think that's going to impact him? I mean, this hasn't had time to really resonate yet and, and hit him in the polls, but I think it's probably the worst possible timing on an issue that's pressuring a lot of people and, and uh, it's really going to uh, make it worse. Absolutely. Um, he found out about this information and couple months later, back in November of uh, 2022, uh, the Liberals increased the amount of immigration coming into the country, knowing full well that immigration was fueling the housing crisis. We simply are only building about a third of the homes that we need to uh, every year to over the next seven or eight years, just to you know get back to a point where it's easy to find a home to buy. I mean, it's crazy in the home markets now. You put your home up and there's 27 bids in 24 hours uh, because there just is a lack of supply and we're not building anywhere near where we need to. And then on top of that, Trudeau just keeps increasing immigration. So this year there's going to be 465,000. It's going to be another 20,000 next year and it's going to be, which takes it to 45. And by 2025, we're bringing in half a million immigrants a year However, we're only building 223,000 homes on average per year. Well, that doesn't take into account people that are already here that need homes, people that are coming in immigration. And then the other thorn here um, in Trudeau's side is the fact that there's a lot of international students that also need places to live. Even if it's only temporary for a couple of years, they still have to go somewhere. Um, and so between like immigration uh, and then also international students coming, there's a massive housing crunch, particularly in cities that have colleges and universities. Oh, and, it, so and this is not, this should not be a surprise to anyone that if you're bringing in X amount of people and you don't have X amount of places to put them in, you would, you would cause a housing crisis. I mean, it's common sense. You know, it's like having the uh, fa the whole family visit from Saskatchewan when you only live in a one-bedroom apartment. It just isn't going to work. Uh, you know, the I wouldn't want anybody to take away the idea that we blame the government's immigration policy in its entirety for the the problem with accommodation. Uh, there are that? other factors, and, you know, Pierre Poliver, within the last year, was talking about gatekeepers, and he was referring to to the uh, municipal uh, municipal councils that often make new development difficult uh, for, in a number of ways. Uh, he was talking about uh, the CMHC and some of their, their stipulations. You know, there are other factors, not to mention the fact that, you know, the Construction industry, like every other industry, has got an aging workforce, and eventually people give up. They've had enough of it, and they're not. And it's not something that's attracting the new blood in. So there are other factors. Yes, but yeah. to knowingly, to knowingly bring in more and more people to cram and jam in more pe the people into an existing. Uh, 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 housing supply just goes beyond negligence and you have to ask for why are you doing it mm -hmm. and so far we have not had an answer from the government on why they do that no, and he's hiding overseas yeah. now so that kind of brings us to a close though we filled it up so much to talk about when jay came on earlier that was the, the question we had on my show earlier too there's just so many issues burning right now it's hard to cover them all so uh, we've covered a good chunk of them, though, and got our views out there. So, Nigel, Chris, thank you very much for another great show today. And uh, We should have him back. We should. Actually, could so, I just piggyback on something Nigel said there uh, sure. about uh, the fees on houses? We had a story a couple months ago in Vancouver and that a million-dollar condo has about $300,000 worth of fees on it. Yes, I saw that like, story. Like, like, think about that. Like, that's 30% of the cost of a condo in Vancouver right now is just simply fees that the builder has to pay. 
before he even starts, he or she starts building, buying what they need, getting the workforce, it's 300,000 bucks out the door. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. Well, we'll keep working on things yeah. and keep hammering on things. So thank you again, guys. And if you want to catch those stories from Nigel Hannaford, Chris Oldcorn, you got to subscribe, get on to westernstandard.news, take it out $9.99 a month, $100 a year. And those who have subscribed already, thank you very much. We really do appreciate it. It keeps us independent. So thank you for tuning in this week, guys. And we will see you all again with a whole new set of issues to dissect next week at this time. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley remains at $345. Feed wheat added $4, sitting at $364, while corn is holding at $360. In the milling wheat markets, December Minneapolis futures jumped 20 cents at 7.82 per bushel, with local hard red spring bid for September movement at 9.25 per bushel delivered. Over to the oil seeds nearby, canola futures are down $2.90 at 794.60 per ton, with delivered values for September movement at 17.68 per bushel. The pulse markets are unchanged, with red lentils trading at 35 cents a pound and yellow peas at $11 per bushel. Looking at the cattle markets, October live cattle spiked 77.5 cents at 180.72 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing and picked up on-farm options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Vera Buziak at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.